Hello. Thank you for listening to this Aspen podcast discussing the new guidelines for parental nutrition in preterm infants from the American Society of Parental and Enteral Nutrition. My name is Kenneth Christopher, and I am Editor-in-Chief of JPEN. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Liam McKeever, Director and Editor-in-Chief of the Aspen Clinical Guidelines. Dr. McKeever is Assistant Professor at Rush University and a clinical nutrition epidemiologist with a focus on nuanced patient-specific consequences of nutrition support in critical illness. Dr. McKeever, thank you for joining us. Hi, Kenneth. Thanks so much for having me. Most welcome. First question I'm going to ask about the guideline is, in general, how is the purpose and scope of guidelines defined? And specifically, if you can comment on this guideline. Yeah. So, I mean, generally, we will have a certain area that we feel is broad enough that it needs recommendations, right? So that that's a sort of general thing. Someone comes up with an idea that says, hey, we really need a guideline on this. And so this particular guideline, this the target population was preterm infants expected to advance to enteral nutrition without difficulty. So this was a very, it was a specific group. So these are, you know, birth prior to 37 weeks of gestation. This excluded congenital disorders, heart disease, short bowel syndrome, intestinal failure, and genetic and metabolic disorders. And so they were, this was uh, just an attempt to put together the current state of the science on key questions that they thought they needed in order to do their job. And how was the scope of the guideline translated into these series of specific research questions? How is that, how do you go from deciding what the scope is to actually getting to the specific research questions? So one thing they don't tell you when you take over a job like this is you're inheriting a lot of guidelines. So I wasn't even there for those initial conversations, but I can tell you how that happens. It's one of the things that takes the longest. So you get together with a room full of people. And the first thing that I usually ask them is, what do you need to know in order to do your job? And that often leads to an almost dysfunctionally long list of PICO questions where you're detailing the population, the intervention, the comparator, and the outcome. And it's often populated with a lot of kind of pet interests and things that maybe are a little uh, to the left of what someone really needs to know. And so we just spend a lot of time honing them and paring them down. I mean, would you like to hear some of the questions that we have on this guideline? Sure. So what they ended up with by the time they were done was looking at things like the impact of early initiation of parenteral nutrition on growth outcomes, uh, parenteral amino acids on growth outcomes and neurodevelopmental outcomes, uh, lipid emulsion dose on outcomes and parenteral nutrition associated liver disease. They looked at the impact of how much soy is in those lipid emulsions. They looked at macronutrient dose. They looked at reducing the dose of lipid emulsion on unbound bilirubin and sepsis risk. Then they went into to micronutrients on growth and morbidities. They looked at customized parenteral nutrition versus standardized on growth outcomes. And then they looked at insulin on growth outcomes. So some questions very, very, very specific and some questions a little bit broader. Yeah. You know, it's really tricky on a guideline. So I'm dealing with this on two of my guidelines right now. Uh, you know, we've got about seven afloat right now, but two of them are in that phase where we're just trying to get our PICO questions down. And 
on one of them, we have like 39 questions and I, I'm trying to bring them down, but there's this kind of balance between if you need to know it in order to do your job, then why not ask it, you know? And then other people feel like, well, no one's going to read it if it's too long. And so there's this, this kind of balance that I'm not sure what the right answer is. On this guideline, we ended up with about 12, mm -hmm. which would be the upper limit, maybe even beyond what the prior editor-in-chief would have allowed. But I'm I'm finding lately it's it's even bigger. Interesting. Yeah. And then once you have uh, your specific research questions, how does the group go about synthesizing the evidence? Well, so here's the thing. We now have new methods on these guidelines, but a guideline like this came along long before those methods were implemented. So nowadays what happens is everything goes into this software called Covidence. We do a systematic search, you know, usually something very broad that takes into account all these topics. That all gets uploaded to Covidence software. And what Covidence does is it allows us to go through and we will screen everything in duplicate and do all of our data extraction in duplicate. And what that does is it makes it so that there are all these checks and balances and nothing is missed. You know, I don't think we were using this on this guideline. This was before I came in and brought those methods in. But uh, what they would have done is they would have screened things manually and done all of their data extraction in duplicate. And so then all of that goes into a large Excel file that makes it my way, and I run the statistics. So we summarize things into forest plots, and we get summary statistics, which, you know, are tricky things to interpret. You got to think, mostly what you get in a guideline is a population average effect. And the reality of, of nutrition is probably more nuanced than that. Nutrition probably is different according to what kind of comorbidities you have, what your you know stage of the disease process you're in and things like that. But a guideline is a broad stroke. So we get these population estimate averages, and then we take all of those studies and we put them through a very rigorous bias analysis. So one of the things that I was able to do when I came in you know, the, the horse had left the gate on a lot of my methods because the guidelines had already started, but I was able to go in and redo the bias analyses. And so I have a team of trained bias analysis experts. I trained them myself. And what they did is they go in and they do this extensive ROB2 Cochrane bias analysis and take copious notes as they're going through so that when it comes time to write the paper, uh, the the writer has a really good sense of what they can reasonably glean from these studies. But so that happens. And then we put everything, everything goes through the grade system, which is really just a transparency system. A lot of people think, oh, grade adds all this rigor. What it adds is transparency. It makes it so that you can generally see what we did. One of the things that happens is you'll often find yourself with either insufficient evidence or evidence that is so heterogeneous in its findings that it's not really telling you what the right answers are. And so when that happens, you shift over to uh, more of an expert opinion approach. But what grade has you do for that is you start balancing everything against potential benefits versus potential harms. So the grade system, what's great about it is it allows you to separate the quality of the evidence from the strength of the recommendation. 
such that you can actually have very low quality evidence. But if you can make the case that the perceived potential benefits greatly outweigh the potential harms, then you can still make a strong recommendation even with low evidence, especially with like nutrition. That's really interesting because the way I always thought about grading the evidence is that if evidence was had, had a low grade, that was an opportunity to do a study in that particular field, if you will. But the way that you're actually grading is much more nuanced than that, where relatively low quality evidence could actually be extremely important. So that's a very interesting insight. It becomes just like the evidence itself at that point kind of almost becomes a qualitative metric in a way. It becomes one of the many things you're considering. Like I think with general grade applied to most medical studies, very low evidence might not be something that you would give a strong strength to because it's something that like, well, if there's no evidence that you should do it, you know, if it's like a medicine or something that we don't know if it's effective, but the field of nutrition, you have to think a little differently because this is a substance that if you don't give it to someone long enough, they die. <laughs> you know, it's not a procedure. It's not a medical um, chemical intervention in a way. Yeah, that's very interesting. Once you've graded the evidence, how are the recommendations formulated? So again, this doesn't follow what we're doing currently because this is an older guideline. But right now, the current Aspen approach is wherever we are using expert opinion, we're going to do a modified Delphi technique, which is essentially a blinded vote uh, that comes out of a bunch of meetings. And you don't move forward until everybody has a 70 to 80% agreement or more. And then what we do is we put together an external panel of eight to nine experts and we validate that. So they get the same list. And if we don't get at least a 70 to 80% vote of a yes, then that goes back to the author blinded and they have to tweak it until we get that so that by the time this is done, it becomes the opinion of a very large body of experts. This guideline did not do that. This guideline was part of the older system. And so really what that is, is it's a bunch of people who come together and, and just have a discussion. But this was a great group of people. This was a group of people that were really, you know, if you read the guideline, the, the transparency and the willingness to not overstate, I thought was really a, a strength of this group. You know, these were people seeking truth. Yeah, that was something that I noticed when I reviewed the, the guideline itself, uh, is the, the lack of overstatement, which I thought was quite refreshing. Um, it, and it really speaks to getting to the truth. And so I think that older process had a lot of value. Could you tell me the specific things that you're doing in the new guidelines now? in terms of things that are different from uh, how the guidelines were done in the past? Yeah. So one of the problems when, for example, when you don't, so we're using COVID in software. The old guidelines were true to scientific method. You know, I mean, they were legitimate. But one of the things, you know, when you're dealing with people who aren't getting paid, who are trying to fit this into an insane schedule, you're going to have a lot of mistakes here and there. You're going to have people that, you know, they're assigned the second review of something that's been done, but, you know, they just do it kind of quickly and just sort of check it off. 
So that's one thing we've changed. By putting that into Covidence, that's no longer an option. Covidence, everyone does it separately on their own, and then a third party comes in to balance out any discrepancies between what they've entered. So that's one big thing that'll save me a few heart attacks uh, at the end of a guideline. The bias panel is another thing. You know, I started to notice when I began working with Aspen, we kind of just assume everybody knows how to do this. And what I found is that almost nobody knows how to do this. You know, like it's very rare that people even know how to name a study design properly. And why should they, right? They're experts at other things. That's not their expertise. So that led to me putting together a separate panel. And this is a great group of people. This is Jacob May, David Church, and now Sarah Peterson has joined us. And they're just very intelligent, inquisitive people who actually take the time to reread every article with a close eye and, and do a good bias analysis. Another major difference is that we post now a protocol. You know, once we've got all our PICOs done, once I've got my search strategy created, we post a protocol with all of that. And we give people a couple of months to comment on it. And the first time I got to do that was with the head and neck cancer guidelines. And it was fantastic. You know, there are so many things. You think you've got everything. And then you'll have a bunch of just really invested dietitians and nurses and clinicians who are just on the ground level saying, well, I need this question answered. I need that question answered. I think you're going to have this problem with that question over there. And so we did find that we made uh, significant changes based on that. And so that'll happen with uh, everything we do now. And that makes it so that truly this process is intervenable by everyone. You know, anybody who would like to have their voice heard, they now become a part of this process. And I think it makes it so much more valuable because you're getting information from on the ground. You're getting that those particular questions that people want answered, not academic per se, absolute academic, but the, the questions that come up on seeing patients, those question answers are probably the most valuable part of the documents. Yeah. And we also have them take, you know, we have team members take the PICO questions and show them to some of their patients or family members as well. Oh, interesting. So that we can just get that, you know, you want to you include all the key stakeholders, right? Everyone who's going to be affected because our priorities and their priorities sometimes are a little different, you know? Absolutely. So there's that. So then the other thing that we do differently is going to be then what I already described, which is for expert opinion, it's no longer going to just be the opinions of a small panel of people. It's going to be a validated Delphi technique where it just takes into account more experts. Excellent. Well, thank you, Dr. McKeever, for your expertise and your insight. It was a delight to discuss the guideline process. Very insightful. I think it's always interesting to, to peer behind the corner and see what actually happens to be able to understand the quality of the recommendations and the quality of the guidelines themselves, because that's what we adopt when we're taking care of our patients. I would also want to thank you, our audience, for listening to this Aspen podcast. To support what we do, please share, subscribe, and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. This is Kenneth Christopher signing off. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.